This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to beherenownetwork.com/jack. So here we all are sharing this in the midst of the pandemic and the beginning of the opening up of in the U.S. anyway, and other parts of the world, uh, of our connections with one another, not post-pandemic, but beginning to, how do we come out of it? How do we hold this? How do we do this in a wise way? And what are the lessons to be learned? There are so many, you know. There's a lesson that I find that there's a certain solitude and stillness that's come along with the restrictions and being sequestered that I realize nourishes me. And I don't want to get so speedy again and travel quite as much. I somehow want to listen more deeply. And all of us have heard this, but it's not been an easy thing either. How do we tend ourselves? How do we tend this world? Here is a very early sutta or text from the first years of the Buddha's wandering in India. Early one morning, when the Blessed One was out on his alms round, the Buddha approached the area being plowed in springtime where a wealthy Brahmin landowner was distributing food to his worker. When the Brahmin saw the Buddha coming for alms, he said, I, O monk, plow and sow, and having plowed and sown and worked the fields, then do I eat. You too should likewise plow and sow, and having done so, you should eat. So he's sort of putting him down, saying, hey, I work, why should I give you food? And the Buddha responded, I too, O Brahman, plow and sow, and having plowed and sown, I eat. And the Brahman said, you claim to be a plowman, I see no plow. Tell me, what kind of plowing is it that you do? 
And the Buddha replied, Faith is my seed, and composure the rain. Clarity is my plow and yoke. Compassion is my guide pole. And my heart and mind is the harness. Mindfulness is the plow blade. I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is my oxen, drawing the plow steadily toward freedom without regret. This is how I plow, and it bears the fruit of deathlessness. Whoever plows in this way will become free of all sorrow and distress. And then the Brahmin explained, let the venerable monk eat. You are indeed a plowman, and your plowing bears the fruit of freedom and poured milk rice into the bowl. But as he did, the bowl hissed as if it were red hot, and all that was liquid flew out of the bowl, and the Buddha stood there peacefully and then walked on his way. So this is the spring plowing, of planting the seeds of faith and tending them with wise effort and compassion, using truth to cultivate release, compassion as the guide pole. But there's an interesting, almost archetypal or mythological moment. Why is it that when the Brahmin landowner finally puts something in the Buddha's bowl and the Buddha steps back as the story is told as if to say, I don't do an exchange for this food. But he puts the food in the bowl and it hisses. Why would that be? Those of you who are listening, who are also farmers, will know immediately that when you cut a furrow in a field with a plow blade, at the end of that furrow, if you touch the blade of that plow, it gets red hot. And this was the symbol that the bowl that the Buddha was carrying was red hot from the plowing that he did, the transformation of all the difficulties of the heart transformed into freedom. Now this text or this story has a couple of different levels to it. The first is the Buddha expressing in some way I've practiced until I've come to the deathless, to that beyond birth and death, to a freedom of heart amidst all circumstances. T.S. Eliot, the poet, called this a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Sometimes it's called the abode of peace or the supreme harmony. It is that place of being without wanting or resisting a single thing, an openness of heart, absolutely present and awake. O nobly born, reminds the Buddha at the beginning of so many texts, remember this freedom is possible for you too. Remember that you too can awaken this freedom of heart. Now, how to do this? 
I remember having a conversation with Ram Das when I was relatively new at teaching. He'd become a friend and a mentor and in fact came to the second retreat I ever taught in a camp in Western Massachusetts. Joseph Goldstein and I were teaching together and that retreat was attended by John Kabat-Zinn and Dan Goldman and uh, my beloved Trudy Goodman and a whole group of other people who became themselves well-known Dharma teachers. And uh, sometime after that, I was sitting with Ram Das. Maybe it was after the first year of teaching or the second together at Naropa Institute, Naropa Buddhist University. And I said, I'm kind of getting the hang of teaching in ways that really serve the different people who come. I'll be in a room and there'll be those who are quite new to meditation with their questions and some who've practiced a long time and maybe spent time in a ashram or a temple or a monastery for months or years. And some in the middle, some who are backgrounds of therapy or psychologists. And I try to find something that I can say to each one of them where they are that uplifts their heart, that gives them a sense of nourishment. And Ramdas paused and he leaned back the way he did sometimes and smiled. He said, yes. And when you get good, with a little smile, he said, you can say something so simple and elegant and true that it resonates on all those levels at once. And I think of that. I think of Suzuki Roshi's phrase, Zen mind, beginner's mind, and picking up that book and reading the goal of meditation is to always keep our beginner's mind and how simple and elegant and direct that truth is to be here now where we are with a beginner's mind. I think of my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was simple in that way. You came and you were struggling or suffering. He'd peer at you and say, hmm, suffering, huh? having a hard time. Then he'd smile kindly, great compassion, say, oh, must be a bit attached, huh? That was all. So simple. A condition of complete simplicity, costing lot, not less than everything. A letting go of presence. And it's not far away, O oh nobly born. We live in the realm of mystery. And we forget it because we go through our quotidian tasks of the day and we get busy and we get lost in thought and all the things that we do being a human being. But then when we go into a magnificent cathedral or hear an extraordinary piece of music, or stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon or up in the high mountains. Or even more, when we're there for the birth of a child. Or in that mysterious and tender moment when we might hold the hand of someone at the very end of their life. And sense their body and spirit separate as consciousness leaves and it's just the empty shell of a body and the gates between the worlds open. 
We know this in making love. We know the mystery in so many ways. I think of my daughter when she was little, how astonished she was by a ladybug that came into her room or by a little red pebble. Or one day we were walking, maybe she was three years old in the early evening, and she said, Daddy, look, the moon is following us. When we turn the corner, the moon comes with us. How does it know to do that? The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Can we, in this equinox, in this beginning of spring, in the midst of the great difficulties of our lives in this world, in the midst of the unbearable beauty of life, can we pause and be present and take a step back and be the witness, the loving awareness, and remember that who we are is consciousness itself, having a human experience. And when we do, our eyes and face get soft. I love watching people come to the end of retreat and they come in all tense and, you know, carrying the struggles of their lives. And after a week or 10 days or however long it is, you see them and it's as if they've been born anew. Their brows are unfurrowed. And we talk about it as the Vipassana facelift. But you don't have to go on retreat. The invitation to pause, even in short ways, to walk among the trees, to take time as spring begins and as the pandemic begins to open a little bit with very thoughtful care, to pause and remember the sense of mystery and find that peace it's not arguing with the world or trying to make it something, but actually as the Buddha that you are, present, compassionate, and open. Mary Oliver writes, when I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the tan oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness I would almost say they save me and daily. I'm so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches. And they call again. It's simple, they say. And you too have come into the world to do this. To go easy. To be filled with light. To shine. Taking the pause, the sacred pause, there's a fundamental dignity that you carry that every human being carries. And here is the Buddha standing in the middle of the spring plowing, in some way being judged as unworthy for he's not a, you know, farmer or a working person. 
And he stands there in the place of peace and radiance and, and being and says, I have done my plowing. And I bear it bears the fruit of the freedom of heart to be just as I am in this mystery. So that's one part of this text, the invitation to be present in mystery, seeking nothing, becoming the conscious witness of it all, the loving awareness. But there's another part of this text. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi explains it beautifully when he said, you are perfect just as you are, and there's still room for improvement. And that's the plowing part. Even as we remember the mystery and rest in being and presence, we can listen to the words of Thich Nhat Hanh. The mind and the heart is like a piece of land planted with many different kinds of seeds, seeds of joy, peace, of mindfulness, understanding, and love, seeds of craving, fear, anger, hate, and forgetfulness. These healthy and unhealthy seeds are always there sleeping in the soil of the heart and mind. The quality of your life depends on the seeds you water. If you water a seed of peace in your heart, peace will grow. When the seeds of happiness in you are watered, you'll become happy. If the seed of anger in you is watered, you will become angry. The seeds that are watered, those watered frequently, are those that will grow strong. So this is also part of this beautiful text. Yes, there's the presence of freedom that the Buddha displays. And yes, he says, I have done my plowing. And each time you sit in meditation, you follow in those footsteps. Trust and faith is your seed. The attention is your effort. To be present for what is, compassion is your guide. And you too do the plowing that brings freedom. Now, over the last 30 years, as we know, there have been eight or 9,000 papers and studies that show the benefit of training in mindfulness and mindful loving awareness and compassion. It increases empathy and connection, it helps with emotional regulation. It steadies and deepens our capacity for, for uh, attention. It actually changes our nervous system, measurable MRIs in the brain. It changes the epigenetics in our cells. Even eight weeks of meditation is shown to change the, the telomeres. Those caps at the end of chromosomes that are protective and keep us healthy and age well. So neuroscience is affirming what the Buddha said. And our practice of wise attention, yoniso manasikara, it's called, caring or loving attention, planting the seeds of trust, mindfulness, and compassion, they change you. They change me. 
They change us. Now, what's important also to understand is that this transformation happens not just when things are easy, but even when the gardening gets difficult. There was a famous gardener who taught at the University of California in Santa Cruz, the father of biodynamic gardening called Alan Chadwick. He gardened by growing soil to grow plants. And what he meant by soil was different than the earth's surface that you usually think. He meant a power in the universe that could be concentrated in gardening to capture cosmic magic. Chadwick grew soil and planted seeds based on relationships that exist between the earth and its moon, the sun, the other planets, the weather, the way doves in the area coo, the mist in the trees, and everything you could imagine. When winter was very bleak, he'd sing about the energies under the surface of the earth. Underneath, the seeds are full of life, life. This very moment, the seeds are waking up and pushing up to the sun. The doves are singing in spring, coo, coo, life, life. Once Chadwick took a class to a junkyard lot that was full of rusted out cars, broken glass, chunks of cement, sand, lots of abandoned trash. He asked the owner if his class could use the lot for an experiment to grow flowers and vegetables. The owner said, sure, but you're crazy. That soil is dead. This garden later became famous for its extraordinarily delicious vegetables and its gorgeous flowers. This is our task in this world, to plant beautiful seeds, to till the soil with our hearts and to tend them. And I think of my teacher, colleague, friend, inspiration, Mahabhusananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, guiding the hundreds of thousands of refugees who'd escaped the Khmer Rouge back to their villages where temples were burned and most of their families were killed. And him saying, you can't go back in a bus or the back of a truck. We have to walk together and reclaim this land with loving kindness. And so he would lead long lines of hundreds and hundreds of villagers with a bell in the front chanting, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And as he chanted the chant of loving kindness through the killing fields and the places of destruction, until people could go back to their villages, he said, with every step, you reclaim your heart and you reclaim this land. And this was planting the seeds of loving kindness in a place that so needed it. Now, every gardener expects obstacles to arise. Weeds, drought, insects, blights, all of those kind of things will come. Guess what happens when you meditate and you do your spiritual journey or practice or gardening, we shall call it. Go ahead, ring your bells, light your candles, burn your incense, call out to the gods, 
but watch out because the gods will come and they will put you on the anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. So you sit down to meditate and you say, I want to be peaceful, calm, gracious. And what happens? It's hard to make a time. Your life is too busy. You've got a long list of things to do and people, things that you care about to tend. And then finally you get to sit down and you're sleepy or you're restless. Or you have the if only mind, if only I did this, if only I hadn't done that, if only all the desires or your doubt comes, I'm not getting very far, should I be doing this? Or you feel all the tensions your body holds. And what do you do? The line from Mary Oliver, to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves, to hold it in tenderness. And then you sit and tears come. Ajahn Chah said, if you haven't wept deeply, you probably haven't meditated very long. Because we carry the, the tears of the way, the ocean of tears of life, along with its magnificent beauty. And fear comes. And you bow and you name it fear, fear, as we did in our sitting. Let me not turn from you. Let me feel this wave of fear, fear. Open, show me your dance. Breath stops, everything contracts, fear, fear. I feel like I'm going to die, dying, dying. <sighs> now what? Oh, I'm still anxious, anxious, anxious. I wish you would go away, wishing, wishing. I hate this fear, hating, hating, hating. Oh, but I'm tired of all, tired. Maybe I'll just go back to my breath. Calm, ease, breathing in and out. Hey, I did pretty good with that fear. Oh, pride, pride, all right another breath, and you start to smile, you become the loving witness of all your dramas. You name them, the emotions that come, the shame, the guilt, the fear. Instead of resisting, you become the loving awareness that says, yes, this too is part of being human. How do you touch the difficulties that arise in your heart and mind? the pains in your body, the difficult emotions? Can you find the courage as a gardener to turn toward that which is difficult? The weeds, the insects, the blight. And can you tend them with a tender heart and care and water the seeds of compassion for it all? Here's the secret, or one of the secrets, that's important for you to know. These obstacles are the path. It's not like they're in the way of your getting to some magnificent, great, wonderful state that you're always open and stop breathing because it's just so peaceful. <sighs> These obstacles are the path. For the very things that are difficult, your restlessness, the doubting mind, the tears that you carry for yourself or the world, they're the place where you learn to steady your heart, where you learn to recognize and allow what's true, where you learn forgiveness and kindness, 
They're the place where you shift your identity from being caught in how it's supposed to be and how you're supposed to be to that place of love. They're the place to grow strong and steady and free in the heart. The Buddha says, as the farmer channels water to their land, so the the wise one directs kindness and compassion to their own heart and mind. Now you remember that phrase in Zen, there are only two things, you sit and you sweep the garden and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That is you quiet the mind and tend the heart and then you get up and you tend the garden. A mindful presence as you quiet yourself in this turning of the seasons and then a mindful loving response. And as you learn these inner capacities in meditation to be with all the waves of emotion and doubt and thought, all the things, the beautiful things and the joy that open and then the closing again and the contraction and opening and closing, just as the body breathes, the emotions and the heart opens and closes and the mind opens fast and then it closes in its ideas. And you learn to be with all those waves that inner gardening gives you the same capacities that you will need in tending the world. In your love relationship, should you have one, and you do in some way, whether it's a loving partner or family member or community or something, but especially you fall in love with somebody and it seems so wonderful, you know, they just seem so compatible and magic and special and You just love it and think that everything's going to be great. You know how it works. And then you decide to live together and have a big family and, you know, start a business together and buy property and, you know, make a whole tribe or whatever you do. I'm just playing with it. But you find someone you fall in love with. And then at some point, this little thing starts to happen. We could call disappointment. They fall off the pedestal. You see their messy humanity like your own. And you get irritable, or they are irritable. One of you gets anxious, the other gets judgmental. And there's the place to love. And because you've learned it in your meditation, you've learned it for love. When I used to perform weddings, which I really don't do anymore, but I did for a long time, and most of them are still married, although not everyone. One of the things that I would do is that I would have the two partners who are going to be married at some point in the ceremony look at one another, and I'd say, do you take this person as is? You know how in the used car lot there'll be a sign in the in the window of the car, you know, here it is, $6,900 for this car, as is. And I'll look at these people who love one another and are getting married, and I'll say, do you take this person as is? Because that's the game, you know. That's really what love is. 
And I say, you know, there's one way to be in relationship, which is attachment and you want something from them. And it's a sort of business deal they give you and you give them. There's another way in which you as the Buddha, as the wise one, as the compassionate goddess Kuan Yin, see the beautiful spirit behind the eyes of this person. And your love is simply like the gardener to say, I'm here for you and I want to support you to blossom and grow in whatever way you can. That is the game that you learn in your inner life and translate it in relationship. But it's true, you know, in every relationship and in everything. I mean, I certainly see it in my my marriage to Trudy, my beloved. For the last year plus being sequestered together, there were moments of cabin fever, if you will, or irritation and so forth. And then I just look at her and I step back from the place of loving awareness and I see her as a little little girl, one, two years old, toddling around. I see her as seven or eight. I see her as a, you know, young teenager, 13, 14 years old, that kind of brightness and innocence. I see her as a young woman. I see her when she had her child and as she grew and so forth. And I see her now and I see this whole arc of being and the mystery behind it and the joys and the suffering that she's been through. And when I step back and get quiet and gaze in that way, instead of the judgment or the need, I just feel a gratitude and an ability to love and be present for the mystery of this other person. And it's the same gardening in parenting. You know, you have these kids and they're small and they try to put everything in their mouth and they're a little older and they hit each other with blocks and you have to socialize them you know, and then they start careening down the street and their bicycle and they fall off and you have to take care of them when they hurt themselves. And then they hit puberty. And what do you do with that? Teenage angst. And then there's sexuality and alcohol and drugs. And they're not, you know, who you think they should be. And you get through all of that and then they leave you. How do you do it? You do it as a gardener. These are beautiful seeds. You water the goodness in them as you do in yourself. You tend them and you love them and you stay steady. Same thing in business. You know, you'll have obstacles, not enough capital. The market changes, the competition gets stronger, the employees quit, whatever. You water the good seeds. And we need it now more than anything for social change. The divisiveness, the war, the racism. I've been reading this wonderful book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, where she reframes the racial suffering we have in a deeper way, or in a very deep way, through the lens of caste, like caste in India or caste in Nazi Germany where one group is empowered over another or abuses another, it's really worth looking at. I recommend it highly because it's a way of understanding injustice and how we play in and how we can change it. But it's a tough time. 
I watch what's happening to my friends in Burma, and we led a march across the Golden Gate Bridge a week or two ago with hundreds of people from Burma and from the Buddhist community to say we're with you and spread those images across the media and underground in Burma so people know that they're with us. We know this. If we want the world to be different, we have to water the right seeds and we have to see what really matters. We have to tend those seeds that matter the most. Here is from Robert Kennedy, a speech he gave in the year before he was assassinated. He was asked about his vision for the economy. Someone asked about gross national product. And Kennedy shook his head and said, gross national product does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It allows neither for the justice in our courts nor for the justness of our dealings with each other. The gross national product measures neither wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. This is it, baby. This is our garden. Maybe the myth is that we stepped out of the Garden of Eden, but we have the garden of this beautiful planet and this beautiful life. How are you tending it? What seeds do you plant? What do you water? Henry David Thoreau said, I do not believe that a plant will grow where there are no seeds. But convince me that you have planted a seed, and I'm prepared to expect miracles. And so our meditation, our spiritual life, it's not about becoming a good meditator. It's about one breath at a time, one plant at a time, one day, one moment. And to see the goodness in the seeds. As Nelson Mandela said, it never hurts to see the goodness in another person, to, to acknowledge the goodness in another person. They often act the better because of it. And I see my friend, Father Greg Boyle. I've read from his book, Tattoos in the Heart, where he started Homeboys Industries in Los Angeles, working with gang kids that would be thrown away by the system into prison or you know, shot or all kinds of things. And he sees the secret beauty behind these posturing, you know, tattooed gang kids who are mostly aggressive because they're trying to save their own lives. And he meets them exactly where they are. And he loves them. This is what you get to do, to shift somehow from the struggle of things to say, I can water beautiful seeds in myself. I can take a walk 
and stand still among the trees, as Mary Oliver says. I can do compassion practice. I can stand up for justice. And doing it not because you have to, but because you get to. To change your language from I have to, to I get to. I get to tend this garden even with all the rusted cars and cement, as Alan Chadwick found. Underneath, we can tend this soil and make something really beautiful grow. There's a story of a woman named Kathy Sneed. And Kathy Sneed started the Prison Garden Project in San Francisco some years ago. She was concerned about the soul death of so many people who were in the San Francisco prison system. And so she began a project to allow any of the, those who were incarcerated to help plant a garden. They were invited to grow vegetables in a garden plot behind one of the prison buildings. And through some fundraising, she got them seedlings and mulch, fertilizer, garden tools. To be able to grow a garden with their own hands, to be responsible for its blossoming, to overcome insect and drought, brought out the best in these men who otherwise had been thrown away by the world. And we have so many millions in our racist poverty prison system. Instead, it changed them. She talks about one macho giant saying, don't step on my babies as she walked through the garden. The prison wardens were amazed by the change. The garden became so important to those who cared for these patches that their lives began to revolve around them. In fact, when the time came for these men to be released from prison, some purposely violated their parole so they could return to their gardens. This led Kathy to the inevitable next step, a garden project for ex-prisoners that spread across the Bay Area because the harvest that she was interested in was not the fruits and vegetables, but it was the harvest of the souls and spirits of these men. Don't think this is not possible in this world. I've talked to you about The Better Angels of Our Nature, the book by Steven Pinker, where he details with numbers the decrease in slavery in the world, even though it's still here in painful ways. The decrease in uh, child abuse and child labor misuse, even though it's still here in ways. Um, the decrease in warfare, even though it's still here over the centuries. The increase in the freedom that women experience, even though it's still terrible in many ways around the world. When you look at centuries of human life on this earth through the lens of consciousness and care and improvement, you start to see that it's possible for us to change this world. And that even though things seem difficult, we can do this. Now, the idea isn't to make it perfect, to make a perfect house and garden, garden, you know, where you get the camera at the right angle and the right time of day and you put it in the, you know, online or somewhere in this showy garden, some ideal you have. 
It's a little bit like that cartoon that was in the New Yorker. It shows a couple of fish swimming in the kind of depths of the ocean, one fish talking to the other. And this fish says, I want the whole thing, the glass bowl, the blue pebbles, the little white castle. You know how we are. We always want something else. But the point isn't to make a perfect garden. The point is to perfect your love. To be able to take the garden that you've been given and find in yourself the intention to turn it into beauty, to do it with joy. L.R. Knost writes, do not be, dis be dismayed by the brokenness of the world. All things break and all things can be mended. Not with time, as they say, but with intention. So love intentionally, extravagantly, unconditionally. The broken world waits in darkness for the healing and the light and the water <clears throat> that you can offer to it. Take a moment and reflect as we start the spring amidst the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. What seeds do you most want to plant? And what seeds do you most want to water? To nourish. What are the seeds in yourself that are calling out to be watered and nourished? Your body and your heart. And what are the seeds in the world that you can care for? You can do this, O oh, nobly born. You are the plowman in that sutra, the plowwoman. You are the one who tends this garden of the world. And as Mark Morford has written long ago, stop thinking all these global crises are all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation and every trouble of humanity, there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head or sigh and throw in the towel. Remember, this is the perfect moment to change the energy, to renew and envision the re-enchantment of the world, to step right up and crank up your personal volume right when it might seem dark or bitter or offensive or acrimonious and conflicted. This is your opening. Remember mystery. Believe in the seeds that you plant and water as part of a groundswell, a seemingly small but actually very, very large 
impending karmic shift, a foundational shift, the beginning of something important and beautiful that can grow with your care. Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. It's never too late to start again wherever you are. This day, you can forgive. You can let go. You can honor the secret beauty and mystery in every being. You can become that loving awareness that is your true nature. For we are the earth becoming conscious. We are consciousness itself. The earth becoming conscious of itself. Such a mystery. And we get to do something really beautiful with it. So this is why you meditate. And this is some way why we get to come together and hold hands with each other, or as we do even in this evening, talk to share our care, our respect, our love. And I know as I finish that I speak of my own intention. I kind of want to become like Ramdas became at the end of his life. He became more and more transparent and more and more loving. He loved everything. He said, whatever it is, I love it. And he really showed it. I love this too and this and there, as I've talked about in his altar, where all the saints and, you know, the statues of Mother Mary and Jesus and Buddha and Kuan Yin and, you know, pages of the mercy of Allah and um, Saint Indian saints and saints from all around the world. And there, of course, was Dick Cheney and Donald Trump, and they all had their place in this altar. He said, my love, my love is for all. I love it all. And he would gaze with those eyes like the Buddha standing there, not wanting a single thing, but becoming that loving awareness. This is who we really are. Plant beautiful seeds, love it all. Thank you. <laughs>